who I don't even have somebody with that so-and-so, that particular so-and-so at this moment. But I once did. I mean, I get what people, don't you? You get in your heart what people are talking about. It's like resonate. You know, the uh, the uh, Dharma definition of compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to the awareness of suffering. And I think it's a, one of the best things about human beings that we actually get it, that it doesn't have to be us who are in pain. You hear other people's pain about this situation or that situation. I was thinking this morning, not even everybody's pain, everybody's vulnerability. Uh, somebody mentioned about all the children that are going to school back again. And when I look out these mornings, as uh, different from the whole summer, it's been quiet on my street and quiet on Sir Francis Drake. And I look out this morning, and this year's crop of five-year-olds being accompanied by their parents is making their way to Basic School or to Kent School or to Drake School and everybody at all these ages. You know, it's this year's vintage, and they're coming along. And... Uh, uh, it just really it touches me when I, I uh, when I go to a graduation, uh, and all those children that I don't know file in. You know, and I went to a couple of graduations this year, so maybe five hundred people file in or something, and you know one of them that you've come to see. So you're really looking. They're all wearing the same gowns, but you're looking for your person. But then at some point, and maybe because now uh, the people are my grandchildren and not my children, uh, maybe I have uh, an older outlook, but as I'm looking at these beautiful people who all look beautiful filing in, I think to myself immediately, and this may be going to give me away as a borderline melancholy, but I think to myself immediately of how much, how many collective trips to the emergency room in the middle of the night, how many collective trips to orthodontists and clarinet lessons and ballet lessons and preschools uh, and school supply stores that the people they're watching have collectively made in order to be able to sit there. I actually think that everybody should file and they should give parents the robes also. Everybody should, they should give parents the certificates. And how many children who filed into kindergarten didn't actually make it through high school and died of some illness or died in a ski accident or died of meningitis because they weren't inoculated or died in an automobile accident or died from an overdose or something that happened? How many parents should have been sitting there, could have been sitting there and aren't sitting there and are thinking about it today? You know, it's hard for me not to think about the, the, the truth that this life is shot through with the possibility of disappointment, also with the possibility of delight and gratitude and thanksgiving and celebration and rejoicing, but by the skin of our teeth, really. I mean, think about it. There are so many opportunities for it to be other. I think maybe that's the principal thing that I have to learn. If I got up in the morning, somebody was telling, people always tell me, well, always, often tell me stories 
uh, that they know from having had a partner or a sister or a mother or something who got up in the morning and said, wow, it's another day, you know, as, as it, with uh, a genuine appreciation that they made it another day. And we get up and we think, oh, I'm already late. How many people get up and say, this is a miracle. Once again, I lay down in my bed and my body breathed all night. And all my Krebs cycles worked and my digestion worked and everything worked. And nothing plugged up in the middle of the night and I didn't die. <laughs> you know, we don't get up and say that. But, but in fact, in fact... You may not know that in the, in the, in the daily Hebrew liturgy, people who do a traditional liturgy say, usually sometime in the morning after they've gotten up and said the initial things that they say, when they do something like, uh, what do we, how do they say this nicely? Respond to the calls of nature is what it says in Buddhist scriptures. We're calling it bio breaks. Let's take a bio break now. When all, when people get up in the morning and do all those ablutions, there actually is a prayer of thanksgiving that you say, and say, I'm really grateful to have this body all full of pipes and tubes and organs that if any one of them didn't open when it was supposed to open or didn't stay closed when it was supposed to close, literally it says this, I'm not making this up, I could not continue to stand here for an hour and continue. That's, that's true. We think about it, but we get up, take it for granted. Whoops, still here, okay, forward. Uh, I know people who get up and say, wow, another day. But really, another day and another day, depending on my cast of mind, because I've already said, I've said it before, it's not a surprise, that I am borderline melancholy, that I tend to see in situations, this could not work, this could be wrong, that could be wrong, that could be wrong. And I'm easily cheered. I'm an easily cheered melancholic, so that's pretty good. <laughs> I am. In the middle of being preoccupied with what could, you know, the, that it's the skin of our teeth and the grace of the divine or whatever that keeps us going, I might be tied up with that. Uh, and I walk out and see that there's a full moon. And I get so excited about that. Like I never saw a full moon before or I never saw a new moon before. It will be... Um, Next Wednesday night, next Wednesday night will be the new moon of the new Hebrew calendar year. New moon is hard to see because it's so sliverish, and you see it just before it sets. The two-day moon you can see, and the three-day moon you can always see. And I actually I prefer, in the way the great, the third patriarch of Zen, who said the, the the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. I actually prefer a three-day moon to other moons. Now, and I tell you that not because it sounds silly, but I actually like three-day moons. They're really nice looking. But, you know, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a Dharma lesson of a light variety in the sense that the one-day moon, if I see it, is about to set. Uh, a full moon just hangs there. Three, and it hangs there about three or four days. But the three-day moon is only there one day. And I look forward to it on a one-day, two-day. I said, tomorrow's going to be the three-day moon. But then it's gone. And the, the, the dharma of that is why not go out and say, wow, a four-day moon. Fantastic. A five-day moon. A full moon. That's great. You know, what, you know, as soon as the mind prefers A to B, 
it, uh, it's it, that what's happening is not good enough unless it's A. <laughs> and we have such a habit. When I said before about my friend, the first patriarch of Berkeley, said, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. That's brilliant. Oh, four-day moon, wow. Ten-day moon, that's interesting, that's great. How could I do that? It's really not about the aesthetics of moons. It's about having a mind that's in an appreciative mood. And I've been thinking a lot about what makes the mind appreciative, whether it becomes appreciative when I think about, "Ah, it might have been otherwise, in the way that it always might have been otherwise. Or whether when I when I really try to focus on what's amazing and wonderful, I quote Susan so much when I go other places and teach. Not here, people all over the place know about Susan Felix, who has a thing. You must have a thing on your computer that signs, because Susan signs all her emails. Stay amazed, Susan. So I'm sure you push a button and it does that. Yeah, it's right there. But it's great because, you know, then when I, after it, I think, oh, I could sign my, no, I can't because Susan already does that. But, and also, I think you stay amazed better than I do, truth to tell. That's a private communication. <laughs> Just like Donald signs all his emails, begins all his emails by saying, may this be a blessed day for you. And then when I get an email from Donald, I say, oh, that's great. I forgot to do that. He does that on all his emails. I'll do it on all my emails. And then I do it on a few emails. I don't, maybe not exactly that way. I hope this day is dawning well for you. I hope things are going well for you. I hope your mother's getting well. Instead of, yes, the meeting is at three o'clock. The second (laughs) sentence is, yes, the meeting is at three o'clock. But the first, why not start all the emails with a blessing? The emails are like, are like batting practice. They keep coming. Boom, boom, boom. It's nicer to, to meet them with a good heart. Donald thinks to himself, this is his practice. May I meet this? email with a kind heart then he looks at it then he answers it may you be blessed may this may that and And I truly truly admire it and uh, when he writes me an email I think ah I meant to be doing that and I'll try to do that and I do a couple of emails and then I forget except with Donald when I write to Donald always (laughs) so I know otherwise Donald will see I'm not doing it I don't want him to see that I'd actually like to do it because it's a good habit, not because Donald will see that I wasn't fantastic. So, so I really, I, the, the, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about is what makes people empathic. I, 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 I talked about how we feel when we hear each other because I think it's a given. I think we are strung to be empathic. And I hear about the children walking to school or I hear about somebody with this kind of trouble or somebody with that kind of trouble. In my life, I have had somebody who had that or I know somebody who had that or I could imagine what it might be like to have that uh, or maybe I couldn't even imagine because I never, a few weeks ago, someone said something that I couldn't, didn't even know people had. I said, wow. But what we intuit is how this person who's saying that must feel at this moment. And we feel, I mean, this is true, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't it moving to you? And it always makes me feel I should be a little bit more kind. I should just not be, whatever little petty annoyances were broiling in my mind, this one shouldn't have said that, that one shouldn't have said that. It gets so erased. 
in when my mind is really looking at it's like screwing the head on straight and you get good vision the good vision is the world is full of complications for everybody and everybody who's doing it is heroic and so we should go around appreciating each other all the time and also i should go around remembering that my petty chatter of who did this or did that or didn't do this or that is totally petty chatter why would i want to listen to that all the time but i do not all, but you know, anybody here never has petty chatter going on? <laughs> because I, you know, uh, but to catch it and say, this is nonsense, and I don't want to do, I don't want to stay on it. You know, we remember stuff, phooey, so-and-so did not send me the email, and they really said they would, grrr. But then to think to yourself, okay, it's enough grrr, now you write an email and say, Sweetheart, may you be having a good day, and may you send me that email that you were supposed to do. You know, there's, it's, it's just about keeping your own mind a good neighborhood and everybody in it with a good story. Uh, years and years and years ago, I can tell you how many years ago, uh, 26 or 7 years ago, when my son met the woman that he was going to marry, and we went to visit her family down in... Uh, Capistrano Beach, and I was standing in the kitchen with uh, Noemi, my daughter-in-law's mother, and uh, I, you know, helping her put out the supper we were have together. And she'd say, "Oh, here comes Natalia, my daughter, up the walk. She's so wonderful. You're going to love her. She's so lively and so good-natured." And then here come somebody else. "Oh, here's my son Jorge coming up the walk." He's such a lovely man, such a poet. He's a pretty quiet, but he thinks a lot and so really deep. And uh, here comes my sister-in-law, Marla. So, you know, Marla's a little bit difficult sometimes, but Marla's had a very hard life. You know, you could really understand why she should be a little short-tempered somewhere. And I really, in that moment, if I got two things. First of all, I got that Noemi told a story in her mind that was good around everybody, so that she had no people in her neighborhood that were not nice. I would like my mind to be peopled by, I'd like it to be a kind neighborhood that I live in. She has nobody that she doesn't like in her neighborhood because they all come trailing their story of explication of how come they're like this and they're like this and they're like that. And I was very happy for my son that he was marrying the the daughter of such a woman because I had a feeling that there was a good chance that she would have inherited that perspective, which turns out to be true. So it's a, it's a good way. So I have been thinking about how do we, if, if there's a way to cultivate a spirit of goodwill, and what does, if anything, mindfulness meditation have to do with it? So I'm, I want to tell you about a piece of research that I was teaching a retreat last week, uh, and uh, I wanted to. Uh, I, I had an idea that in my talk that I was given, giving, I wanted to mention that practicing mindfulness meditation as we do it, moment to moment, poised awareness of what's happening inside and outside. Uh, led to not only 
more alertness in the mind about what's happening and more wisdom about how to respond to it, but also a kinder heart. And I remembered somewhere back in my memory that in the last couple of years, listening to Richie Davidson or listening to Cliff Sarin, listening to the neurobiologists who are teaching about researching how mindfulness practice changes uh, the way that people respond in the world, I remembered that on some uh, chart of results, they said people had greater um, mental acuity that on on uh, tests that they took before they did six weeks of meditating and after six weeks of meditating, they got more uh, response tests. They take tests often on computers to uh, see how fast they can do the test. When you see X, you touch Y, and when you see Y, you touch Z and how often they can do various acuity tests and response tests and even inhibition of response tests. We get a, 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 um, a one of the little tests will do something like, say, every time you see X, click Y, except if the X came right after an S or something that you really had to think about, and they go X, tick, X, tick, X, tick, Oh, but there was an S. Okay, but it's not ticking. And so you have to be able to inhibit this because you're going to tick, 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 tick. So inhibition of response. So they do all these tests, and I remembered that on all of them, inhibition of response, acuity of seeing lots of Xs and Ys, everybody got better from the six weeks of mindfulness. But I remember on the list it said something about, um, it was a word for, like, tolerance, like their um, uh, uh, mm, not patient. It was something like uh, goodwill, open-heartedness, something like that. And I couldn't remember what particular uh, virtue of the heart because it was it was something particularly that had to do with not getting annoyed so easily or being being more kind-hearted. I don't remember what the exact word was. But I thought to myself, now that's the result that I need because, okay, mental acuity is good. And nowadays, people are in fact doing mindfulness trainings in big corporations and in Google and in Monsanto and in the army and all over the place. And there's a lot of discussions out there about uh, whether if you make more people more efficient in what they do, is it a good idea to... Uh, to do that, I mean, business as it is 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 really often quite uh, interested in what's the bottom line and how much should we. So maybe is that aiding and abetting that more efficiency, or is there some uh, redemptive moral side to that? And then I remembered, I was that when I saw that finding, I was glad to see it because I start way back before they even began with. Um, testing what happens uh, by using machinery, I would say I was saying I'm quite sure that as people become clear-minded, they become kinder and more good-hearted just because it feels better. And that if you were clear-minded enough, you'd see these choices are leading to happiness and this is not leading to happiness. And that as you become clear-minded, you're less self-preoccupied because... You're just less self-preoccupied. You're less tense. And then you can look around and say, look at that. There's a whole world out there. I could relate to that. Anyway, 
But I wanted to be, have scientific verification of this. So I wrote to my friend Cliff Sarin, who many of you have met. How many people met Cliff here while he was showing his slides last year about Cliff Sarin um, has a lab at UC Berkeley, uh, at UC Davis. The principal work of his lab is um, doing experiences with people practicing mindfulness over periods of time, testing them before and after. He's uh, just finishing now the test results from last year where uh, he tested people who did the one-month retreat in February, the one-month retreat in March, uh, and they all have greater mental acuity. They're faster at the tests. Anyway, I wrote to Cliff and I said, I need a test that tests compassion or kindness from mindfulness, not doing the tests faster or more efficiently. So he sent back this from the New York Times from this year, April 1st. Scientists have mostly focused on the benefits of meditation for the brain and the body, but a new study forthcoming in blah, 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 what impact meditation may have on interpersonal harmony and compassion. The study was conducted by two uh, uh, psychologists, scientists, at Northwestern University. They invited participants to complete eight-week trainings in meditation. And after the sessions, they were put to the test. The trainings that they did were mindfulness trainings. Sitting in a staged waiting room with three chairs with two actors. By the way, I don't know if it says this here. It said it in the other paper that came with it. They got 40 people to volunteer, and they picked 20, and then just randomly... And the other 20, because it wouldn't be ethical not to give them the training, said, you'll do the training after. So we're going to do this eight weeks with these people, then we'll do eight weeks with you. And they did a test in the middle of all of them. Each participant arrived at the lab by themselves independently. Sitting in a staged waiting room with three chairs with two actors, with one empty chair left, the participant is shown into the room and wait. they're all told, go in this room, sit down, and you're going to be called in to take a test. So he, the person goes in, he or she goes in, finds two cha- three chairs, two people already sitting, takes the third chair. Another actor, using crutches and appearing to be in great physical pain, then enters the room. As she did... did The actors in the chairs, the two people already sitting in the chairs who are complicit in the experiment, ignore her by fiddling with their phones or opening a book. I mean, how many times do you go to a doctor's office and you see everybody fiddling with their own stuff? (laughs) You know, I remember in in UC uh, San Francisco where I go every couple of years to have a bone scan, Everybody sits there in the waiting room, and there's a television coming down from the ceiling. And I was there. They were showing some terrible uh, soap opera about somebody. And I thought to myself, why are they showing that? People could just bring their eyes down from here and look around. Everybody in that waiting room, most people in that waiting room look bad. This is a radiology uh, floor. 
you know, and I, I, you know, I'm, I can't, I'm just having a bone scan, but you can see that people have significant difficulties. We don't have to watch this made up story. We could look here and we could, and if we looked here, we'd probably say hello to each other and say, how you doing? Are you well? Can I get you a cup of coffee from the machine? You could possibly interact with them. Here is a machine. Anyway, it's my morning's rant. I'm sorry about that. Uh, so here the, the other actors in the chairs ignore her by fiddling with their phones or opening a book. Uh, the question the team wanted to answer was whether the subjects who took part in the meditation classes would be more likely to come to the aid of the person in pain, even in the face of everyone else ignoring her. Because that's an important consideration. There's lots of research that shows that if you arrive on a scene where something terrible is happening and no one's doing anything about it, people inhibit themselves. They don't do it. You know, so you come and something bad is happening, but no one is doing anything, and you're loath to jump into the fray. So here, it's the same situation. Here's their answer. Among the non-meditating participants, only about 15% of the people acted to help but among the participants who were in the meditation sessions, 50% of the people got up and gave the person their chair. The truly surprising aspect of this finding is that meditation made people willing to act virtuous to help someone who was in suffering, even in the face of the norm not to do so. These results seem to provide support for what Buddhist theologians have long believed, that meditation is supposed to lead you to experience more compassion and love for other beings. Even for non-Buddhists, the findings offer scientific evidence that meditation techniques may alter the calculus of the mind. What do you think of that? I, you know, I, I, th- I think about the study. I was very happy to have it. And I thought, well, we have to have 10 more studies to replicate that, at least. Uh, what else? What did you think about it? You're more in touch with your humanity is what you think. <laughs> Only half. Only half of the people actually got up. So how would different cultures impact? I think that's a really important kind of a... That would be a whole other interesting thing to think about. So you're thinking it makes you more tender-hearted. That's what these researchers are supposing. <coughs> And, and they're saying the, the the good result of the tenderheartedness is that we're maybe more tuned into other people's distress. I th- you know I I think that myself. Uh, I meant it before when I said, in a, perhaps in a blithe way, that I'm a borderline melancholic. I am, and I always I, you know, when I was a teenager, I was already thinking about this is all very sad. I come from cheerful people, and I'm not an uncheerful person. 
But right behind my consciousness is always the idea of, even in a wonderful moment, you know, all kinds of things. We're all so vulnerable, you know, really. And see this brand new baby last night, and I'm thinking, I'm the only one in this room who's thinking, I really hope that nothing befalls this baby. Because it, it doesn't go through your mind, you know. If you're the parents of that baby, definitely it doesn't go through your mind. I think the mind filters that out because that's such an impossible thought. You can't manage it. But I, I have really... Uh, th- who else has that? Don't you all have that? Yeah. My thought is they'll be teenagers. <laughs> they'll be teenagers. They'll drive cars. They'll, they'll experiment with drugs. They'll this, they'll that. They'll fall in love. They'll have their hearts broken. A million things could go wrong. Somebody sent me, uh, I think it was Susan who sent me the, the, this Susan, stay amazed. Wait, wait. Bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus and your cat will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car and throw you a blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age. It goes on and on and on. Your parents will die no matter how many vitamins you take or how much Pilates you do. You'll lose your keys, your hair, and your memory. This is interesting because I have to say there's a Buddhist story of a woman chased by a tiger. It's funny how stories go through iterations. That particular story is it's a monk chased by a tiger, but it changes of a woman chased by a tiger. When she comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine and climbs halfway down, but there's also a tiger below. That wasn't in the story I heard. And two mice, I only heard one mice, uh, one white, one black, and they come out and gnaw the vine. And she eats the strawberry that's growing there. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will get stolen. You'll get fat. You'll slip on the bathroom tiles of a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. But how sweet and tart the strawberry is and the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. Ellen Bass. Ellen Bass. Ellen Bass. You know, and you think about it because we can laugh about it, but everything happens to everybody. It does. And I, th- I, I think, you know, when I think about that, I either, depending on the climate or the, the steadiness of my mind, I either think carpe diem, this moment, I'll eat the strawberry, or I think eek, you know, it's, it's all too hard for everybody. And it really has to do from moment to moment on how, how my mind is in that moment. What else do you think about the experiments? Can you think of another experiment? That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard to test uh, compassion, but people are trying to do it. But I operate out of the, out of the sense that uh, it is my own, my own awareness of how fragile it all is that makes me tune into to, uh, how anybody here must feel when they say my brother, my father, my sister... Because if it were mine, you know, uh, I think I think that's the difference, and I don't know why, why it happens to some people more than others, with or without meditation. 
is that the near enemy of compassion is pity. And uh, according to the Buddhist text, and they say pity is feeling sorry for somebody. As it, but it has a story. It has a little bit of aversion in it. It's uh, thinking, uh, oh, maybe sometimes a person might have a thought as they pass a homeless person in the street. You know, if that person had taken better care, or if that person wasn't an alcoholic, or if that person this, or if that person that, I feel bad for them. And you don't think they're, I could have been that person. so it really, that kind of thinking makes a big difference, a distance between. It's actually a little bit protective. The mind is trying to protect you. Say, so that's not going to happen to me because I am doing all these things right, right, right. But the thing is, we don't know what's going to happen to us. Right, right, right. And things happen to people. And maybe things happen to people, things happen to people certainly that, that find themselves homeless. But different things happen to me that find me in difficult situations. Things happen to everybody. And you don't know what, and you don't... You really, really don't know when. I kept thinking about that all all this summer um, with the Asiana flight that happened, you know, and the girls that were going to go to Stanford this summer and study English. You don't know in the morning... Every time you tell somebody goodbye, you don't know. Every time someone says, I'm taking the car, I'll be back later, you don't know. And at a time in my life that I was really, really overwhelmed by that, I, I think that's probably the principal reason. Somebody sent me an email yesterday, he's doing a study, said, what was the principal reason that you got involved in, in meditation? Uh, were you interested in enlightenment? I said, really? No, I, you know, I didn't know what enlightenment was, but I knew that I was in a part of my adult life in my 30s, 20s, 30s, thinking about how often I heard when people said, uh, I'm taking the car, I'll be back later, and you say, fine, I'll see you, that you don't know. And for some reason or other, that, that particular um, sense of, uh-oh, we just don't know, any of us, ever, in my mind, at that at that point, that became a predominant kind of a thought, and my interest in um, my interest in meditating was not because I had an idea that meditating was going to help. That I I'm an accidental meditator. Uh, it was the '70s. People were going to meditation retreats. My husband was. Uh, he would have said, "I'm an explorer of spiritual paths." Uh, he would come home from all his exploring and say, try this, try this, try this, try this. And I went to a lot of spiritual paths and tried them, and nothing bad ever happened. I went there, I heard what was going on, and mostly I didn't go back anymore. And then I, he went to a mindfulness retreat, and he said, this is great, and I went. And it was. And it mostly was because they talked about, they, they sang my song. They said, from the beginning. They said life is very challenging because you can't count on anything. It's always changing and you don't know what's going to change next. You don't know what morning you're going to get up and find out that the mammogram is not good or that something else is not good or the phone rings and something is not good. And I was talking with my friends the other day 
because a group of women all uh, hovering around 70 or more. We're talking about uh, how, uh, you know, of course you can get sick and die at any age. You know, the Brutus rubric is old age, sickness, and death. But I'm thinking about young age, sickness, and death sometimes. It doesn't always come that way. But the truth is that as you get old, you have more of the sickness and death business going on in your proximal community. And... uh, Somebody said, I have more people now in the next world than in this world. <laughs> you know, but, but we start to, you know, when, when you're 17, you don't have more people in the next world than this world. So uh, we're talking about that, that. It's a serious thing that people keep disappearing from the landscape. And you can't not see it. And that particular vision was what sent the Buddha out from his uh, non-seeking life as a prince in that community. I don't know whether the the uh, the dramatic story of him sneaking out through the palace walls and he had never before seen old age, sickness and death and then he saw them for the first time. I think I tend to think that that's a metaphor for the fact that at some point in our lives all of us we think uh-oh there's something I hadn't thought about before in this life. It's complicated, and we're going to lose everything that's dear to us, everyone and everything, and our health and our own life, faster than we thought. Uh, I don't know if that faster than we thought, but now that's another that's a that's another part of another conversation. But whenever it happens. Somebody said to me yesterday, we're doing some yard work at my house and replacing a, a, a handrail on one of the stairs coming up. And I said, you know, we put this handrail up about 10 years ago. Uh, when we moved into this house 52 years ago, it had a handrail, but it wasn't attractive. It was made out of steel piping. and We didn't need a handrail. We were 25 years old. So we said, this is an unsightly handrail. We took, it da- we took it down. I remember taking it down. And about eight or ten years ago, as our friends were suddenly, and we were suddenly older, we had a new handrail put in. And as I was participating in putting in the new handrail, it's, I remembered taking down the old handrail, which seemed like the day before yesterday. And I couldn't, I couldn't imagine what had happened to that 50 years. I mean, I, I, you know, I know what date, so I can tell you that happened in 1962 and that happened in 2008 or something. But, you know, where did all that time go? And it's nowhere. We're going to zip, 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 and here we are. And zip, 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 the rest of it. And I think that the answer somehow to having a mind that doesn't get stuck in, uh-oh, uh, it's just grief and loss is somehow figuring out what keeps the mind buoyant enough to say it is grief and loss, all of it, and it's also marvelous. And the loss is okay. Loss is what happens. It's also marvelous. I got started a new book last night that I wanted to read you a, whoops, a little bit from. First of all, there's an article in this month's, uh, this week's uh, New Yorker called What's Wrong With Me? And it's a very, very provocative article about autoimmune diseases and the increasing frequency, apparently, of autoimmune disease and the numbers of autoimmune diseases and 
theories about what's going... People haven't figured out why suddenly there are so many different autoimmune diseases where you can't fix it. And also, uh, autoimmune diseases happening to all ages of people in all kinds of ways, very hard to diagnose. And But from one day to another, you don't feel good. And then you often, like my friend... Uh, Tony Bernhardt. Oh, Tony was here last week, wasn't he? Were you here? Tony's great. Tony's great. Tony's wife, Tony Bernhardt, his wife is also Tony Bernhardt, is coming in the middle of September, September 18th. She's written a new book called How to Wake Up. It's wonderful. Tony has been sick for 12 years with an autoimmune disease that keeps her pretty much housebound. So it's a big deal for her to come here. But her book is marvelous. And it's getting wonderful reviews, so be sure to come. Anyway, wait, wait, wait. I got stuck with it. Oh, somebody was telling me, maybe it was Tony that I was talking to, said there's a new book out called The Kingdom of the Sick about how one day, sometime, you get up in the morning and that day you move from the kingdom where you live, the normal world, into the kingdom of the sick. And a whole lot of different people live there. And they live there often on a permanent basis. And it's different. The world from inside ICUs and doctor's offices and scopes and Skypes and all kinds of things that you don't think about until you accidentally wake up in that world. Say, whoa, this is a whole parallel world with different stuff, with appointments and treatments. And your life is different after that. And you say, oh, this petty annoyance, that was nothing. That was really petty. This is... What's her last name? Hmm? Tony Bernhardt, B-E-R-N-H-A-R-D-T. You can find her other book probably in our, um, in our um, bookstore. But here's a new book that someone else told me about yesterday that I had been reading last night and this morning. And it's called Happiness Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. <laughs> no, seriously, I like it a lot. <laughs> so I like, I like this a lot because, as you know, there's been an epidemic of positive thinking. You know, you just have to put your mind on. You have to set a goal and get there, and you have to put your mind on. You don't entertain the possibility of... And whether... An... Oh, my Kindle is speaking to my... It might be. Somebody told me yesterday that if you lock... Somebody who locked their keys in the car... Wait a minute, was it you, Joe, who told me about the keys in the car? Tell about that, because this is very important. This has nothing to do with what we're doing, except this is help for life. Now, wait a minute. Somebody else told about locking their keys in the car and calling and having someone phone. Okay. That was your helpful hint. Locked her keys in the car, had her husband call, her cell phone, 
Oh, Sarita had her husband called her husband said, "Okay, now I'm putting my cell phone right next to the key, right next to the car handle, and he on his end clicked the car key into his cell phone, which spoke to her cell phone, which opened the door." No, this not a pe- now. Never mind. Never mind that it's not uh, the part of the, the the where we were going. It's not an important thing to know. <laughs> Skip the whole triple A. Okay. So this particular man who's, who's got very funny, very funny wit. I'll tell you what his name is right away. Maybe. Uh, no, it won't let me tell you what his name is right now. But he's talking about get motivated, all the things about positive thinking works in every way of your life. Uh, he says he's not that type of person. But what he's bringing up is maybe that's not the best uh, approach. That's what I want to think about. So uh Talking about some particular person, I wouldn't even mention because it's gossip, but has a very famous philosophy, which is the doctrine of positive thinking at its most distilled, isn't exactly complex. Decide to think happy and successful thoughts, banish the specters of sadness and failure, and happiness and success will follow. So he said, you know, that doesn't work necessarily, but some very major people go to these huge benefits. Uh, now we'll skip over whose stuff he doesn't like because I don't like to talk bad on people. But we'll say, uh, for a civilization so fixated on achieving happiness, we seem remarkably incompetent at the task. <laughs> One of the best-known findings of the science of happiness has been the discovery that the countless example advantages of modern life have done so have done so little to lift our collective mood. The awkward truth seems to be that increased economic growth does not necessarily make for happier societies, just as increased personal income above a certain basic level doesn't make for happier people, nor does better education, at least according to some studies, nor does an increased choice of consumer products, nor do bigger and fancier homes, which instead seem mainly to provide the privilege of more space in which to feel gloomy. (laughs) Perhaps you don't need telling that self-help books, the modern apotheosis of the quest for happiness, are among the things that fail to make us happy. For the record, research strongly strongly suggests that the self-help books, the happiness, positive, rarely help. This is why among themselves, the publishers refer to the 18-month rule, which states that the person most likely to purchase any given self-help book is someone who within the previous 18 months purchased a self-help book. (laughs) One that obviously didn't solve the problems. Now, this is not to knock this, but I think it's making a point. When you look at the self-help shelves with a coldly impartial eye, this isn't especially surprising, that we yearn for neat book-sized solutions to the problem of being human is understandable, but strip away the packaging you'll find that the message of such works are frequently banal. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People essentially tells you how to decide what matters most to you in life and then do it. How to Win Friends and Influence People advises readers to be pleasant rather than obnoxious (laughs) and to use people's first names a lot. Um, Well, what he's saying is, you know, they work, but they're not that incredibly deep, you know. 
when messages get more specific than that, self-help gurus tend to make claims that simply aren't supported by reputable research. The evidence suggests, for example, that venting your anger doesn't get rid of it, and visualizing your goals doesn't seem to make you more likely to achieve them. Whatever you make of the country-by-country surveys of national happiness that are now published with some regularity, it's striking that the happiest countries are never those where the self-help books sell the most, nor indeed where professional psychotherapists are most widely consulted. The existence of a thriving happiness industry clearly isn't sufficient to engender national happiness. It's not unreasonable to suspect that it might make matters worse. Yet the ineffectiveness of modern strategies for happiness is a small part of the problem. There are good reasons to believe that the whole notion of seeking happiness is flawed to begin with. For one thing, who says happiness is a valuable goal in the first place? Religions have never placed much explicit emphasis on it, at least as far as this world is concerned. Philosophers have certainly not been unanimous about endorsing it either. And any evolutional evolutionary psychologist will tell you that evolution has little interest in your being happy beyond trying to make sure that you're not so listless or miserable that you will lose the will to reproduce. Although assuming happiness to be a worthy target, though, a worse pitfall awaits, and that's aiming for it seems to reduce your chances of ever attaining it. (laughs) Ask yourself whether you're happy, observes John Stuart Mill, and you cease to be so. Uh, we remember times when we think we were happy more than we're actually happy in the present. But there could be a third possibility besides, I wanted to get to one loop, besides the, aha, here it is, a futile effort to pursue solutions that never seem to work on the one hand and just giving up on the other. After several years reporting on the field of psychology as a journalist, I finally realized that there might be. I began to think that something united all those psychologists and philosophers and even the occasional self-help guru whose ideas actually seemed to hold water. The startling conclusion at which they had all arrived in different ways was this, that the effort to try to feel happy is often precisely the thing that makes us miserable and that it is our constant efforts to eliminate the negative insecurity, failure, sadness that causes us to feel so insecure, anxious, and unhappy. They didn't see this conclusion as depressing, though. Instead, they argued that it pointed to an alternative approach, a negative approach to happiness that entailed taking a radically different stance. This is where it comes to Dharma, what we do here. A radically different stance towards these things that we spend most of our time, lives, trying to hard to avoid. It involved learning to... Um, hold uncertainty, embrace insecurity, stop trying to think positively, becoming familiar with failure, even learning to value death. In short, all of these people seem to agree that in order to be truly happy, we might actually need to be willing to experience more negative emotions, or at the very least, to learn to stop running quite so hard from them, which is a bewildering thought, one that calls into question not just our methods for achieving happiness, but our assumptions about what happiness really means. And it goes on, it, it goes on and on, but mentions the medieval tradition of memento mori, which celebrated the life-giving benefits of never forgiving about death. Um, Aldous Huxley said, um, 
labeled the law of reversed effects or the backwards law, the notion that in all sorts of contexts from personal life to politics, all is trying to make everything right is a big part of what's wrong. Uh, Alan Watts said, when you try to stay on the surface of the water, you sink, but when you try to sink, you float. That's the insecurity of the result of trying to be insecure. Anyway, the negative path to happiness is not an argument for bloody-minded contrarianism at all costs. It won't do, you won't be doing anything, yourself any favors by walking into the paths of oncoming buses and, and rather than trying to avoid them. Nor should it be taken as implying that there's anything wrong with optimism. A more useful way to think of it as a much-needed counterweight to a culture fixated on the notion that optimism and positivity are the only possible paths to happiness. So I'm going to leave that right there because I want to say in this last minute and have minutes and have you respond. I think what we do here is isn't opt is in a certain way optimistic when we sit here and we say out the names of people that we're thinking about who are in difficulty or in certain challenging situations. The optimism that I have is not that they'll get better if I mention about them and people think about them. Maybe, I hope they I hope they get better. And maybe when we were all thinking collectively, it set something up. I don't know about that. I just really don't know. The optimism that I have is based on my continuing discovering that as soon as I tell people what my pain is, I feel better. And I think everybody else does too. If I say... I feel awful. I keep thinking about the parents of those poor Chinese students. You know, I think about the parents of the uh, 20-year-old arts and crafts counselor at Tawanga that the tree landed on. I'm thinking now about the, 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 the apparently there's fires up in those Tawanga camps and they've, they've really uh, evacuated the camps. And the people who have uh, land up there and are losing it. And the situation doesn't get better. But what is eased is the pain and the tension in my own mind when it's being pulled by those thoughts. If I tell them to you and you tell other people yours and we tell each other, it says, it is for me and I think it is for you. A sense that we've all agreed. Life is really difficult, isn't it? Let's share it. Let's, yeah. It's a sangha. And I think we replicate that in any close group of friends I mean, it's become a joke, about, you know, says, it's not a very funny joke about elderly people. They say, all people, they get together. And people will say it this way, I got together with my friends last night, and there was an organ recital. So said, you know, that, which sounds like an organ recital, but it sounds like a theatrical presentation. But old people have a lot of things wrong with them when they talk about it. My this, my that, my something else. But, and, and, you know, it's a subject of a tremendous number of jokes on the internet. The word in Yiddish for that is kvetch, means complain. But I, you know, I, and I, I have said on so many occasions here that I, I'd like to have a mind that has no complaints. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. Because a complaint means it should be otherwise. You know, if you, if you order a, a, a picture from a, a water pitcher from a company and it comes and it's twice as big or half as big as it's supposed to be, you call the complaint department and they say, send it back and we'll fix it. You complain when you expect that something will get fixed. If I have something, you know, if I, whatever it is, uh, 
an illness or a situation that I can't fix at this point that maybe isn't fixable. Maybe it's not complaining in the sense of it should be other, but it certainly is saying the statement, I wish it were other, but it's not. And then other people hear us and they say, oh yeah, I wish it were other too. And then, I, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like if we make ourselves transparent to our community, to our friends, to our intimates, then we don't have to carry the burden around alone. Everybody's got a pack of burden. You know what I said before in the beginning? You look at an, a street and you say, who here is enlightened? You know, you don't see anybody levitating or whatever. You actually can't see into their minds. You can't see if they're having a problem, not having a problem, if wars are going on or if they're totally delighted about something. You don't know at all, but you do know that they're a person. And you know what happens with you. So my, my sense is, this is a person just like me. Who knows? And from that, I think, comes the sense of may they, we be, may, be, may they be well. So I actually think, I'm, I'm very relieved to read this. This is called, by the way, if you want to read it, uh, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Because I, I, I think I've been waiting for this book. To, <laughs> positive thinking is fine, but I don't think it's magic. I think, you know, you can do it. You know, when you stand at the edge of a swimming pool and your grandchild is swimming a, a, a race in a, in a, in a swim meet, you don't say, well, take your time, whatever. You say, go, go. You can do it. It's all the same to me if you win or not. Well, you look, you do it on the television if you watch the Giants play and they don't care, they can't hear you. But you, you do it because you feel like saying, go for it. You can do it. This is your chance. It's fun to do that and cheer people on, but, and cheer yourself on. Somebody was telling me this morning that they talk to themselves when they get upset about something. I do, I do, I try to do that. I can't find my glasses frequently. And then I say, you see that? It's another sign that you just, maybe you have to get those strings and hang them for you. Too old. I say, wait a minute, sweetheart, you're going to find the glasses. They're somewhere in the house. What's the chances you threw them in the garbage? Very small. You'll find them. So you talk yourself down out of the tree. You talk yourself down. That's, that, and that's positive thinking. They're in the house somewhere, sweetheart. Just keep on looking. Or don't look. Do something else. Make a new pot of coffee. Then you'll find them. Ah, there they are next to the coffee pot. You know, that, 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 that's positive thinking. That kind of positive thinking. Imagining that I'll be able to run uh, a mile or 10 miles or whatever I used to be able to do. It, you know, I'm going to do it. I can't do it. That doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't work. So I'm happy about that. Anyway, that's what I want to think about. And uh, that's what, and oh, wait, wait, this is important. And it's after 11. Ah, what should I do about this? I'm asking you collectively. I am scheduled. I am delighted to be teaching a meta, offering a meta retreat for seven days next October, not next month, October 2014. It's, I, it's going to be a research retreat, just as people are doing research with the mindfulness and then you take tests on a computer. People have not done mind research with metta so much. It's a week of people doing metta practice all week. And uh, what makes it research is you have to fill out a questionnaire beforehand and keep little bits of notes every day on how you felt at different times. Otherwise, it's a meta retreat. And the other thing you have to do is at four times during the day, 
you spit into a vial and put a cork in it and put it in a refrigerator where they're going to be saliva collection boxes. And the saliva is going to be tested with methods that show if there are DNA changes. So it's a very, very interesting thing. I had, I had, I agreed to do it because I'm not teaching any other retreat this year up there, but I decided I wanted to do that because I like the research. And I said I would teach 35 people and do it up in the upper hall so that they could have another retreat in the lower hall. And I got an email from uh, the program director here yesterday that said, you know, if you're teaching a meta retreat with uh, Donald and um, Larry helping you, which I am, a lot of people are going to come. Why don't you teach it in the bottom hall and you'll have 70 people or 80 people? And I called the researchers and they said, yeah, well, that'd be all right with us. It's not too much, you know, because saliva keeps forever. They freeze it. And, they'll, you know, even if the research takes years. Because uh, I said I wouldn't teach it, it. I wouldn't teach a big retreat if only half the people were doing the saliva business. And, because I don't want, I, I would want everybody to do it. What do you think of that? Would you go to, how many people would sign up for that meta retreat? And and do the I mean the spitting is one minute four times a day. <laughs> so would you not do it because you don't like the spitting or do you just do you, do you, no huh 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 you want to be in the upper hall you won't go in the lower hall I don't know I don't say that well. <laughs> I have to make a decision. What do you think of the idea? Great. Is that an interesting idea? I want to see if my DNA changes. Seven days. Seven days. So what would, how could you do it down here? Not going to do it down here. No, up, up in the up in that hall, they sometimes have one retreat upstairs and one retreat downstairs. They said, why don't when they have thirty-five people in each retreat, said, why don't you do a big retreat up there, and seventy people in the research? So I wanted to know if there was a groundswell of enthusiasm. How many people want to do that? That's about ten people, Gail. There they go. Huh? Larry Yang. Larry Yang is one of my favorite people to teach with. Donald is a favorite person. Okay. You th- you like the idea though? Huh? Well, there really isn't any difference. If we had thirty-five, we'd be upstairs in that upstairs yoga hall. And if we had 70, we'd be downstairs in that whole beautiful big hall with all the big windows. But otherwise, no difference. And I don't want to do it in that big hall if half the people are doing the experiment and half the people are not. And probably uh, probably one of the Dharma talks in that week would be uh, Cliff or Richie Davidson or somebody who would come and talk about uh, the, um, the neurology of uh, neuroplasticity and how that works. So I'm interested in doing I that. I think you'll fill it up no matter what size. Yeah. You think so? Yeah. So when is the date? What was I know the date. It's, it's like November, October. I have to look it up. To, uh, middle October. Middle October. Hmm? Not yet, because they're still wanting to know if I'm doing it upper hall or lower hall or big retreat. 
Maybe the big retreat is a good idea. A retreat in the lower hall and just one retreat happening and 70 or 80 people. Not spinning all day long. You spit when you... <laughs> actually, spinning sounds terrible. It, I, I, I recently did it. You, you get a tube. You, put, you, you do two or three spits. That's all they need. You collect saliva and you put it in a little tube. And you do it in the morning and at lunchtime and in the uh, late afternoon and before you go to bed. So two of them are just at when you get up and when you go to bed. And you, it's a, I just did one of those saliva things. It takes two minutes to, and spit it. And you put it in a refrigerator. That's the whole, and you'd have to fill out a questionnaire about your moods every day. So that would be, and the retreat will cost less because you're research participants and you'll get a certain repayment from um, from the granting organization. So you have to pay participants. So you get a lower fee on your retreat. And we'll probably fix it up so that everybody gets a private room. So that would be another perk. So you don't have to spit with other people around. <laughs> anyway, I will not see you next week because there's a teacher meeting. So Donald, I think I won't see you next week. Tony next week. And then I'll be back for the whole September, I think. Okay. So I'm sorry not to see you next week because then I would have said Happy New Year because it will be the night before Rosh Hashanah. So, But I will be back the next week when we will talk about the uh, 10 days of the year where you really take stock of yourself. 10 first days of the new year where you think about yourself and where you want to be at the end of the year. Yes. I should mention the baskets because they're... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.